journal readers. I'm Catherine Druckmann. I am talking to Doc Searles, our editor in chief, and Petros Katupis, our editor. Oh shit, I don't even know. Damn it, I'm gonna have to redo it. <laughs> I was about to say editor at large. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Ah, see, I self-doubt, man. No, like, don't edit it. Keep rolling. <laughs> I, I, I don't, don't edit. You know, you know, I think of it as editor in case. You know. How many horrible words did I just say? I don't know. Okay, well, whatever. They'll forgive Podcast, us. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so Petros has written actually some really great deep dives. It's not just this month. Um, there have been some really, really nice ones actually since our since we started doing the deep dive articles, really, which was since our resurrection in January. Um, but this month in particular is all about... Well, it's really storage as it relates to high-performance computing. Um, and the first, the first half of a two-part, two-part article was actually really, I don't know, kind of resonated with me just because, I don't know. I think Petros and I have this in common. We we're we're history buffs, right? So <laughs> we can so we can sort of view anything, including technology, you know, through, through that same lens. It was, um, I don't know, Petros. Why don't you take us through it a little bit? Uh, yes, I am a history buff. Uh, mainly uh, old world Mediterranean history, but I'm also a fan of uh, uh, history and technology, especially as it relates it relates to uh, you know the technology that the computing technology that we use nowadays. Um, but before I get into that, I just want to you know state uh, firsthand full disclosure that uh, I am employed by IBM, but in no way <laughs> are, are the things that I'm going to say. Uh, IBM focused or centric. Now there is going to be some mention of IBM since they did help pioneer some of these technologies that uh, that we take for granted nowadays, um, like the hard drive, for example. But that aside, I wanted to also share that I've been in data storage for well over a decade now. I mean, I've been working with hard drives, spinning rust platters for as long as I can remember, and started working with. You know, by the time I got out of uh, college, I'd been working with SCSI technologies and SCSI in the data center, you know, fiber channel protocol, helped build the first serial attached SCSI enclosures and, uh, and, and, and uh, marketed them to, to early enterprise adopters. I mean, I was all over the place uh, when it came to data storage. So uh, it was only natural when we started to talk about um uh, high performance. When we decided to do an issue for Linux Journal on high performance, the first thing that came to my mind was, I need to do something on solid state uh, disks, on solid state drives, you know, SSDs. Everyone knows what an SSD is nowadays. Everyone looks to, you know, solid state uh, devices to help, um, you know, uh, increase uh, performance of uh, their systems, right? And uh, that's sort of the the focus around these two uh, these two parts of this deep dive, and that is, let's figure out how we got to the state that we are at today. Uh, you know, how did storage and memory technologies evolve over time to where we are today? What are we using today, and what uh, where is the technology going? And that's sort of where the second part of this deep dive uh, focuses on, and that is it, it, the non-volatile memory express technology, you know, NVMe and NVMe over fabrics. Like how do you network, you know, these solid state drives? Um, and, and, and that's what we're, you know, what is covered in the second part. So that kind of gives you a high level overview of, you know, where things are at. But uh, 
I mean, yeah, the, the, the primary focus of these deep dives is NVMe. How do we get to NVMe? And just in case you missed it the first time, NVMe is short for non-volatile memory express, and it is a NAND-based, so, you know, microchip <laughs> transistor-based uh, uh, memory technology that plugs into your PCI Express slot, whether it's on your home PC or in a server somewhere in a data center that you don't even know where it is located. And um, the, the idea behind NVMe is to sort of uh, not only increase performance of the device, but unlike traditional solid state drives, it kind of bypasses all that um, that translation layer of multiple protocols and slower buses and gets that memory device as close to the CPU as possible. Well, so, so without looking at the thing right in front of me, what what percentage of corporate memory right now is solid state versus spinning rust platters, as you put it? Ah, that's a, I wish I knew the answer to that right now. I did dig that up some time ago um, for a business plan I had been uh, writing some time back. And uh, market share as it is today is still less than half of deployments. And that's because the, uh, uh, the price per gigabyte of, a, uh, of, of an SSD of a flash device the gap is still much larger than what it would be with, uh, you know, your traditional spinning disk. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 you know, three or four cents per gigabyte on a spinning disk, if that. Maybe it's 0.03%, I don't know. But the, the, the cost of a spinning disk is so dirt cheap that at this point, a lot of um, companies and enterprises are still able to get by with the slower speeds so long as they don't have to uh, spend the high cost. But that gap is narrowing. And I remember reading a piece recently on LinkedIn by a former colleague who does just this. He actually digs up a lot of the prices from all the memory manufacturers and has been able to you know, piece together a, a nice summary where it shows that to date, uh, that the price per gigabyte on a flash device, uh, be it, you know, SATA, SAS, and when I say SAS, I mean serial attached SCSI, or even NVMe is in uh, in the low 20 cents or high teens nowadays. Um, so that gap is narrowing. But at scale, uh, you're, or I shouldn't say at scale, uh, capacity-wise, um, we're still able to push out uh, more in a more capacity in a three and a half inch canister uh, spinning disc as we are in a two and a half inch canister of um, of chips. So what kind of applications are, are going to really benefit more? In other words, be worth you know spending the extra money on the better mem on the better storage and whatnot. Um, where versus what can still get away with the the slower old school rust discs. Well, that's a, <laughs> if you were to ask me, I would say everything would benefit. But I'm being sure, very okay, here. fair enough. If, uh, if 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 the price, you know, the price if the price is not a an, a hurdle, I suppose. Sure, why not, right? Uh, exactly. And the thing is, obviously, people you know look to SSDs nowadays uh, for the performance boost, the performance kick that they get, uh, at least during the uh, first complete write cycle of the uh, of that flash. And when I say first complete write cycle, uh, 
when you write to a flash cell for the very first time, you're not going through a normal programmable erase cycle, meaning reading the contents in to memory, modifying the contents, erasing the original contents, and then writing the new contents back out to, uh, to, to, to the chips. And this in itself is a multi-stage and time-consuming process, although much faster than writing to a you know spinning disk, a magnetic disk, after you first write to the cell of a, of a, of a NAND, of a chip, uh, you start entering a, something called, like I said, a programmable erase cycle where you go through these normal routines. The first write, you just write new data out. But every write afterwards, it, it, it takes much longer. So you'll always get that performance boost uh, right off the bat onto the, the, the disk, even after you hit the programmable erase cycle. But uh, as far as what applications will um will uh you know are, are are the ones that you know would be able to leverage this the best you know you have a lot of mission critical applications that companies tend to throw a lot of their workload on uh ones that are uh tend to be very uh performance sensitive you know you have a lot of database related uh stuff uh workloads you know queries new entries and, and, and so forth uh when it comes to you know where it would shine less, I mean, there's still a case to be made for um, archiving, uh, you know, technologies, being able to take your data from a, a, a top tier, first tier, and then, you know, offloading it to, to a, you know, backend archive tier. Obviously, there's, there's very z zero, you know, cold storage, I think, is the, uh, the, the, the term used to, to describe this, especially as it relates to the cloud. And I think AWS calls this uh, Glacier because it, it just kind of offloads it into its own, you know, archive, you know, right, right. vault or pool. And, and, and obviously this is not necessarily where you're, um, where you're, uh, where you would be able to reap the most benefits from the technology. But, you know, that, that, that's, you know, being said, I mean, there's a lot of application uh, or a lot of applications that would see a lot of benefit with this uh, type of technology. It's just a matter of adjusting your workload to accommodate it. Cause not, cause if you just invest in technology and, and, and the, and, and your workload is not necessarily tuned for it, you may not necessarily get the best results either. Okay. So I'm wondering also, not to derail the, the awesome storage conversation, but I wondered if um, if you might want to talk a little bit about some of your other deep dives that have actually um, gotten, I think, a pretty great response. Just in general, this concept of um, being able to cover a topic a little bit more thoroughly than I guess maybe we have in the past and and you know have you I don't know I, I wondered I wondered if you've gotten any any personal feedback from readers on some of these articles actually um a few of the deep dives in the past I I, I did the initial blockchain one Mm, that was popular. <laughs> I know that was well received, but I didn't necessarily hear directly from the readers. The ones that I did, however, hear back from uh, the readers are the ones that focused on on cloud computing, mm, which I believe, and, and I don't remember off the top of my head, I believe that was a three-part uh, deep dive that I did, uh, maybe two-part. I know the container one that I did was a three-part. Containers was three, yeah. Yeah, that I was. I think the cloud was just two. 
okay, that you maybe you're right. The the container one was a three part, and it was extremely well received. Where I saw a lot of people reaching out to me after that, uh, and, and and asking me just a whole bunch of questions. I mean, some of which were asking me to help them out, and I said, "Hey guys, I I can't do this. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about here. I just make it up as I go along. I'm kidding. Yeah, um, yeah. Whatever gets you off the hook." <laughs> <laughs> But, so, uh, so what is the experience? I, I'm just, you know, I, I kind of, I think part of the reason that we do this podcast is, is not, I mean, we, we have a lot of, well, we have a lot of opinions to share, right? But we also kind of give people a little bit of a glimpse into our, our um, editorial process. Sometimes we talk about how we, we've tried to reach different groups of readers and, and, um, and that sort of thing. And I just wondered, just from a, an author and editor's perspective, how if maybe you wanted to share a little bit about um, the difference, your approach to something like these these deep dives versus, you know, just, you know, sort of a shorter article. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of preparation that goes into them. And is there something that you'd like to share about that? Well, first of all, I'm surprised there's an editorial process. I didn't, I just, <laughs> I didn't, I, <laughs> don't tell. I, I'm kidding. I, I know. Of course I'm, there is, Petros. <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, um, yeah, these deep dives obviously tend to be very lengthy. Uh, so what is my normal process? I mean, the, the, the first and foremost, a lot of the deep dives that I had written for uh, Linux Journal, I'm comfortable with the material. I'm comfortable with the content. And a lot of it is content that I already know. You know, uh, going back to the, well, the, the, the blockchain one was pretty new to me. So I had to go uh, all in in not only dig up as much information because blockchain is still a relatively new well the original paper in itself is not new that was the white paper uh that was published you know over a decade ago but the technology as it is being used today is still so new that i had to do a a lot of research and i even had to stand up my own blockchain in my own house to be able to write that uh those pieces but with the you know, the, the deep dives on the cloud and the containers. And now with this high performance, you know, uh, flash drives and, and, and NVMe network stuff, this is stuff that I already know. So it was it didn't take much for me to to uh, research and and, and 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 gather as much information aside from the uh, the, uh, you know, the code examples and the network setup examples that aside. I mean, everything else was just stuff that I've been around for, like I said, over a decade now. So as somebody who's um, took a deep dive into the blockchain, what do you think about the, the sort of trend that we're seeing where, um, I don't know, almost any topic or any industry or any process suddenly um, is supposedly revolutionized by the by blockchain technology? Well, see, see, the, the answer is blockchain. What is the question? Right, exactly. And, and the real, and the real answer lately. is that what I is the you know what are the few questions for which the blockchain actually is the answer? Yeah. You know, I think we're starting to hit this tipping point as it relates to blockchain, where we try to wedge it in into so many areas where now it's starting to really show where it's actually shining and where it's not. I think people are starting to find out now where blockchain does not necessarily work, and you know have to rethink their strategies. 
I actually read an article just this week. Well, it was a it was a post um, I think on the Ernst and Young blog um, about how uh, the wine industry or a few players I suppose in the wine industry are are interested in um, in wine provenance and and preventing wine fraud among you know very very high end expensive wines using blockchain technology. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean it. I would be shocked if, if uh, the, that industry got the buy-in necessary for that sort of thing anytime soon, but something to think, to think about. If you have a problem that you can solve, by all means, try and solve it. But it, it's just interesting to see these, these things that, that you would not think about you know, coexisting. You know, not, now you make me uh, wonder. I'm more of a Scotch guy myself, and I wonder <laughs> if, if I can use blockchain to, to help uh, – you know, manage, uh, you know, the scotch industry, you know, just, uh, yeah, just you like, you like your single malt, uh, blockchain. Is that yep, single malt <laughs> blockchain? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of things going on that aren't necessarily, that aren't necessarily called blockchain. So one of the areas, uh, that I've heard about is that, uh, the province of British Columbia is involved with the sovereign foundation, which, uh, uh, my wife, who is a Linux journal connection, uh, is involved in as a as a trustee. But um, but they're using a distributed ledger, uh, the the sovereign distributed ledger, which is the one. Uh, the code is it's something called Indy, which is at Hyperledger, um, and Hyperledger itself is part of the Linux Foundation, which is a connection for us, um, at least into editorially. Um, and and they're very focused on what what are the sort of very sober and responsible deployments that uh, they can help the world with. But some of it's very mundane. I mean, it's just it's it's another way to do data. It's another way to 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 you know to store data basically. And you know there are distributed ways and there are non-distributed ways. This is a distributed way. Well, I mean, obviously, obviously, like I said, right now <clears throat> we're we're starting to see that point where people will find. You know where it's useful at and where it's not. So I, I I'm I'm curious to see because you know one thing that's always surprised me about blockchain itself, when you actually get down to it, the technology itself or the concepts that it's actually pushing off and you know the way it distributes and replicates the ledger across every single active node in the cluster because I mean that's all it is. It's just the giant globalized you know cluster, right? Um, but at the end of the day, the technology in itself is not that innovating, uh, at least from my personal opinion. It, it's just the concepts are not, you know, earth shattering. It's just now the our, our, our computers are have finally caught up our hardware, our processor speeds, you know, memory, uh, you know, just networking speeds. They've all finally caught up where we can take this over decade old white paper and have finally put it into practice that's what i find most fascinating about blockchain in general it's not that the that that the you know technology itself is is like you know is the concepts themselves are super new it's just now we're finally able to take something that's been around at least in thought or an idea and and, and put into practice and and i'm curious as 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 uh, technology continues to evolve because i mean we're just going up from here right you know what else has been written about that's just kind of waiting you know for for uh, the technology to finally catch up where we can really you know start seeing you know 
new wonderful things. Sure, I think I think you know the the tendency for any any new technology is to throw a ton of different applications at it. Some of them will stick. Some most of them, you know, probably won't. But but hey, you know, if if a few, if even a few really effective uh, applications come out of it, then hey, why not? Great, improve the world <laughs> with your blockchain. It, it, it's interesting, you know, if you if you um... Paul Barron's original early 60s diagrams that are credited with uh, the design of the Internet, as it were. And they were network diagrams. He basically had uh, a field of dots. If you just look up Paul Barron, B-A-R-A-N, and do an image search, you'll see this. And um, and he wrote this at a time when, as for the RAND Corporation, when when they were a defense contractor, I guess they still are, um, and and the whole idea was that you wanted to make your network safe from nuclear attack or something. So and all networks were centralized at that point. In fact, there were like, you know, 40 computers in the whole world or something. But uh, but his idea was that there's centralized and then there's decentralized and then there's distributed. And he was the guy who basically foisted the, the term distributed on the world. And in the first case, you have a central point and all the other points are connected to it as dumb terminals basically and then in the second one it's a bunch of all the dots are connected by multiple centers that are connected to each other but basically it's polycentric and in the third one there's a line running between all of them and that's actually the that is the blockchain that's the database that's a database design it's not necessarily the network design that we have because the the network design we have for the internet I'm talking with my hands here. That's not going to help. Um, the, 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 the network design that we have with the Internet is where all those dots are disconnected until any two connect, can connect to each other. It's basically there's infinite optionality between any number of the nodes, um, but they're not all connected at all times. That was the what, what Barron imagined. He couldn't. His idea didn't comprehend the possibility that a network would be optional for every node on it. They would have a unique address, but the address wouldn't necessarily be live at a given time and but for a distributed database for a distributed approach to data what he designed was you know what he diagrammed anyway is kind of exactly what we have with blockchain um is a all it's fully distributed um and all of them do the same thing at the same time and they all or not at the same time but they but they you know they all have the same responsibility toward the data as it were it's not a sharding approach um which I know like Google does and uh, others do in there for search where it's kind of sharded out all over the place. It's, it's all kind of on one thing, but it's all distributed. That's just one observation. But the other, the other thing is it's really hard to separate fashion from other things. And we're at a moment in time where we're really suffering over centralization. We've, we've dealt with centralization for so long. It's an industrial age notion uh, it worked great in the industrial age. We're reapplying it in the digital age. We don't really need to for everything. It's not the ideal way to do everything. We know how vulnerable it is at this point. Um, and we're kind of reeling from that. But there's sort of a natural impulse to say, well, the distributed answer might, must be the real thing. We need to go to distributed. And and there's blockchain saying this is distributed, but it may not be appropriate for everything. Actually, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up uh, the, the whole you know, network uh, and, and, and centralization uh, topics, because, you know, one thing that comes to mind is uh, when when somebody opens up a browser and types in www.whatever.com, right? 
what yeah. happens? You communicate with a root DNS, very centralized centralized server out somewhere in California, right? And then yeah. you get fed this IP address to say, hey, no, this address points to this machine out in the middle of Europe somewhere or wherever, it doesn't matter. And I know there have been a few efforts uh, in recent years since, since blockchain started um, you know, gaining some traction to start decentralizing, you know, these root DNS nodes and, and start replicating, distributing these, let's just say, uh, these tables, these entries, uh, right. entries onto multiple machines where you don't have this. And I'm going to call it, although I'm, I'm sure it's, it's, you know, they've made it super fault tolerant. I don't know the, the, you know, the, the network setup, you know, for, for these root DNS servers. But I mean, at the end of the day, when you distribute all these uh, these these DNS entries across multiple nodes and make it you know in such a way where you know they cannot really be tampered with and and uh, there's no bottleneck to even access them. I mean that just that's just crazy to me and I'm I'm surprised even though there are like I said there are a few technologies out there and one that comes to mind is Handshake uh, that that are trying to achieve yeah. this. Um, I'm just surprised that there's you know. That, that there's not m more interest to move in that direction than what is currently being seen. So, so it's interesting. I have uh, a, a friend of mine runs, uh, in fact, he's a, an old friend of Linux Journal as well. Um, I'll just say who it is, is Elliot Noss, who runs Two Cows in Canada, which does open SRS and Hover, which are domain registrars. And, um, and he, he's pointed out to me that, you know, he, he's, he's as much about distributed as anybody. Um, but when you have something that kind of basically works, there's, you know, it, you don't have, you know, it, DNS is as, as, as kind of antique as it is in a way. And, and as much as it's sort of weird to like you change a name for something, it takes a while to propagate out and, and all of that. And, but somehow it's just still working. It's kind of like, you know, well, I mean, there's still the streets of New York are, you know, the, the power plant in New York distributes steam under the streets of New York for purposes inside buildings to steam heat the buildings. And that's been there since the 1800s or something. And it, but it still works. And there it is, you know, and I think there's a lot of stuff in the world that's like that, where there really is a more ideal solution if we were zero basing the future. Yeah. But we're not zero basing. We're, we're dragging along a, a 900 point um, moving average of, of history and costs involved in making a change. There, there's a protocol called RINA, R-I-N-A, that some people I greatly respect um, just want to make succeed TCP IP because there's so much more you can do with RINA than with TCP IP. But we've got TCP IP. It, it's, it's like, um, with the I mean, the 32-bit address space, other things like that. These things just tend to sit around for a long time. Well, what you're describing is the technology industry as a whole. Do you know how many places I've walked into? You know, the mentality, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah. And many places I've walked into, and they're still running, you know, original Sun Spark systems, right? Mm -hmm. Early Ultra Spark systems on not Sun Solaris, but Sun OS, the BSD variant or ori original Sun OS. Yeah, yeah. And they're still running applications off of these these things. And it's like at a certain point at what I don't know. My concern at that point is you won't have talent 
readily available to maintain these once these one or two people disappear. But it's that mentality. If it's not broken, you're not going to replace it or fix it if it continues doing what you want to do. I mean, that's just that's just how enterprises, you know, companies, how, how the industry works nowadays. And it's it's kind of depressing if you think about it. Right. Uh, yeah, you need something to break. In other words, <laughs> once something breaks, then change happens. It keeps us employed, damn it. <laughs> yeah, well, one hopes. <laughs> well, it's like, I mean, I don't know. I, I imagine there's still some Novell netware in the world somewhere. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think, you know, these things tend tend to hang around. I, I have this history in broadcasting as a really um, deficient broadcast engineer, but the... Um, but I know, I mean, what happened there was that, I mean, there's a lot of, it's it's kind of hard to find talent now for people. I mean, would you rather work in computing or would you rather work on a transmitter, you know? And and the transmitters, for the most part, have become fully um, automated. When I was young, I used to, in New Jersey, I'm talking to you from California right now, but when I grew up in New Jersey, my idea of a good time was to ride my bike down to uh, then what they now call the Meadowlands. There were swamps back then in New Jersey. That's where all the big old AM radio stations serving New York, all the New York AM stations, with one or two exceptions, were on the saltwater swamps there because the best ground conductivity, which AM radio needs, was down there. And the land was cheap. And um, and you'd visit the old guys at the transmitters and talk to them about transmitter lore. And you know, phased arrays, and if they had multiple towers, they had directional patterns and, and how all that worked. And it was really fascinating to me as a kid. And, 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 but you used to have to have somebody there. You had, a, had to have a full-time person there to mind the transmitter. None of those are, you know, all of them are remotely operated now. They're all just sitting there as, you know, like a, you know, like a transformer on a pole. Um, but the expertise for knowing how all that stuff works there's still an art to it and for the most part those guys are gone you know but the but the business is still there it's sort of interesting i i mean it, but you know we have these legacy technologies that lay around yeah i know a lot of them lay around and are still in and are abandoned not even used i know i know you're talking about cases where they are still used but i see in many cases where they're not even being used and and that's also a shame and just kind of um kind of a graveyard of um, just what has been. But uh, no, it's... I've, I've, I have to tell you, I've got a, a, an interesting graveyard project here at our house in Santa Barbara where I have, I'm looking at them now, three camcorders going back to VHS time. VHF is rel- VHS is relatively easy, but um, Hi8, um, Super8, I, you know, I, I forget what the names of the formats are, but the only thing that I can get that can with device drivers to operate these things over a USB connection um, is an old Macintosh running uh, iMovie. And I have like several vintages of those that I've dusted off and brought upstairs to try to pry out of these old tapes. I've got like dozens of tapes with each of these formats and what Apple sells today doesn't have those device drivers this this shit's too old yeah um, you know doc they have a service you know you can uh i know there are services that do that and they're expensive <laughs> they're expensive i, I don't I, want I've, you know. done, I've done it i've done it for my parents i've done it for us and, and it's so it's, so here he, here here's an example of that at work 
the best I, I mean, the first time I did that was in 1998, 88, 88, for my mother. I took all of her own 16 millimeter um, movies that she shot in Alaska in the 30s and 40s. And all of the eight millimeter um, film that she and my father shot of our family in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. I think by 70s they'd stopped doing that, but and we'd been grown up at that point. But um, and and I've organized them chronologically. I brought them to a place and had them all transferred to VHS tape, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then I recorded her on cassette on a boombox responding to these things. And I have both kinds of tapes. I have the cassettes and I have the VHS tapes somewhere. She's long gone. Um, they'd be really historically useful. But now my, my new challenge there is what do I put that into what MPEG-4? What? I mean, I could take that to a service again or two services is going to require something, but it's going to be expensive again. It's going to be, it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge, especially when one's children and grandchildren are millennials, um, or my older kids are Gen Xers, I guess. But the, but they live in a time right now when even photography is disposable, like with Snapchat. I mean, we regarded photography as and movies as archival. It was static. You save these things. For them now, it's like you shared it with your friends. And you don't care anymore. You might as well throw it away. It's like a, a gum wrapper. You it's know, really it's really interesting. I had an art professor who said all photography is about death. I think he's wow. long gone too, by the way. But it, but in a sense, you know, he was correct. You know, photography has traditionally been it, it's archival, as Doc says, and and it represents a point in time and and it, it's short. That's long term. It's like short term memory now. That's yeah. That's kind of what's happened to it. You know. And you're and we're constantly chasing formats. We, right. we never stop and we never will. So you, you have to sort of anticipate two formats ahead, you know, in order to not uh, you know, have to convert another several times. I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but the anthropology well, of technical tech garbage is. <laughs> could, well, could here's, here's what I like to throw episodes. back at uh, along that line, Catherine, I like to throw this back at you, Petros, at, at, uh, with, with storage, because you know about it and I don't. Um, there were these opportunities that we had at different points to standardize something that we succeeded with. We did with TCP IP and HTTP and even DNS and some other things like that. Um, uh, with blogging, we had RSS um, that have more or less stood around and, and been useful. Um, we failed and Linux Journal, we were part of that failure. We, we in the late 90s got very much behind Jabber and XMPP as the way to standardize chat and messaging. And it almost worked. XMPP is still around. It's still being used. But but in the meantime, on, you know, Apple Store and Google's store for Android, there are hundreds of ways to do chat. And there's no and, and messaging and there's no and lots of all the standards that people are using for the most part are proprietary. And I'm wondering and, and that was a missed opportunity. We could have standardized that and we didn't. Um, I'm wondering if in storage, is there, I know, I mean, like in a, in a laptop, there's like NVIDIA stuff in there that's always been sort of contentious. Um, there, some stuff is, is closed, you know, and I'm wondering whether anybody in the, in the 
in the leading edge of storage where massive amounts of solid state storage are having to be deployed in the clouds and enterprises of the world, whether some Qualcomm-like company has a corner on some of that, and that's one of the reasons why it's staying expensive. Well, I will say this. As it relates to the hardware, it's all standardized. And I'll get into more detail in a sec, but as it relates to the way it's accessed, uh, that tends to be a bit more proprietary. Now, taking a step back with the hardware, you know, up until uh, the SCSI SCSI 2 specification, uh, vendors... uh, built their storage devices, whether it be hard drives and their networks to their own specifications. So there was sort of a, a bit of a vendor lock-in. You know, you bought from mm-hmm. one vendor and because their hard drive communicated with their RAID controller, you know, in their own uh, skewed or, or, or not necessarily standardized version of SCSI 1, you know, they, mm-hmm. they sort of filed the spec, but not really. Right. And, and, and you kind of were stuck with that vendor. But as of SCSI 2, the committee, you know, was a bit more, um, you know, forceful in the way, you know, hardware manufacturers complied with the specification. So by that point, you started to mix and match vendors should you choose to do so. You bought yourself a, a you know, Seagate, and I know this dates me, but, you know, Quantum or Maxter, you know, like hard, right. and, yeah. and, and and you could, you know, use an LSI or, you know, some other branded, you know, uh, storage controller, whether it did some sort of RAID, you know, uh, fault-tolerant algorithm to, to pull those drives together um, and make it accessible to, to the user, but all of that stuff, you know, is standardized. Even the protocols for, you know, enabling storage networks themselves, you know, SANS is what what it's called in the industry, was also um, uh, standardized. And this this tend this this um, this trend of standardization continues even to this day, where you even have, you know, the newer storage technologies such as NVMe and now the NVMe over fabric networking. Uh, technology that too is is a you know standardized um, uh, you know technology that has a committee behind it the committee with you know high profile uh, companies and individuals sitting uh, you know with their own seat on on the committee you you know from Dell to I'm sure IBM has it and and, and many other you know big name uh, uh, hardware manufacturers but the where it gets a bit more proprietary and tricky is where the software is on top of this storage stack and the software that tends mm. to bring more value or more features and functionality to this stack because at the end of the day a pool of drives is nothing more than a pool of drives it's just what you make of those drives you know for instance do you enable you know fancy data compression algorithms to help reduce your data footprint do you you know uh distribute your data in you know so and so manner you know do you it's it's this that becomes a bit more proprietary and and pushes this us back to this era of vendor lock-in yeah but but even today um it's not just, you know, you going down the street and buying yourself a, a solution from NetApp or a solution from EMC or a solution from somebody else that you tend to get this, you know, 
this proprietary vendor lock-in type of, um, um, you know, uh, feel. But even, you know, with the, the, the public cloud, you know, such as AWS, right? AWS has been in the industry or Amazon has been in the uh, cloud storage industry for such a long time. I mean, they started, I think, back in 2005, 2006. I, I don't remember what it Maybe was. Maybe even earlier. I, I, I remember talking to Werner Vogels, who invented it basically for, for um, Amazon at uh, a thing in France in the early aughts. It may have been a little later. It may have been like 2004 or 5. Um, and at that time, I asked him, you know, I said, you know, you guys are going to put your cloud all over the place. What about in all of the, uh, the old switches that the phone companies had? I said, they're also wanting to compete with you. He said, yeah, they can't compete with us because we know what we're doing and they're not, it's not their business. We've, this is our business and we're getting really good at it and we're going to be way ahead of everybody on it. And he, I think he turned out to be right. And I think a lot of Google's cloud, or for that matter, a lot of um, not Google's, I meant Amazon's, but, uh, but Google's as well, I think, are probably in those, those, play, those old switches that had highly conditioned power coming in, lots of empty space. Um, and the rest of it, but I don't know, I don't know. But but that expertise really makes a difference if you've got that and you can hire the talent and uh, and pay it well, and 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 the rest of that. I mean, that's a that's that's proprietary in its own way, I suppose. Yeah, and and I think in in uh, in the case of Amazon, what I find interesting interesting though is you know they also define their own protocol, right? Mm, right. Okay that customers connect to and what, because they were in the industry for much longer and, and uh, carved out a market share much, much quicker or much sooner than, than the later competition, it forced the competition that eventually showed up after the fact to conform to Amazon standards. Like, you know, for instance, if you want to plug into Amazon's uh, object storage, you have to, you know, uh, speaks, you know, S3. You know, and mm-hmm. and uh, what 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 happens now is, in order for newer players in the industry, and that includes IBM with their IBM cloud, you know, they they had to uh, conform to the S3 protocol just so they can get the same uh, users to either jump from Amazon over to their cloud or just find some way to to you know get wider adoption so now they have to conform to amazon's uh, proprietary um language or communication yeah yeah there's a, i i i wonder i mean i i would i had hoped when uh when open source went mainstream as an idea in the late 90s and early aughts um i was very optimistic that people would that industry in a general would see the advantage of what J.P. Ragaswamy and I uh, together when he was at BT and I was consulting him at BT called because effects, which is you make money because of something rather than with it. So you make money because of Linux, not necessarily with Linux. You make money because of these standards, not with it. And, and you get all these wonderful second order externalities out of it out of out of standardization that you're not going to ever get out of out of just 
locking down an intersection and charging people to cross it. And that doesn't seem to have fully sunk in. And I'm wondering if it ever will, actually. I, I wonder whether the there's something that's so deeply ingrained in human mentality that it is what Walt Whitman called being um, uh, demented with the mania of owning things, you know, that we have to own this, we have to own that. Uh, I, I remember having a conversation with Sony, some people at Sony at a CES many years ago, when they had this proprietary codec for their mini, there's little mini discs. I have lots of those too. Um, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was called Attrack, and nobody else used Attrack. And, and they had the same thing with this Sony stick, you know, instead of instead of an SD yeah. card or a the CF card, <laughs> they had their their sticks, you know, and and they were horrible. And only Sony sold them, and and they were not standard. And uh, and yet, you know, there they were. They they had to do it their own way. It's kind of like the dog has to pee on that fire hydrant, right? We just have to do that. And, and, I, and I, I don't know, I, I, I kind of despair that we'll ever get past it. Yeah, Sony was always like that. I mean, I think, I think history has shown them to always, I mean, as far as I can remember, um, they, they were always like that. So this whole, we, you know, we either mentality of we can do things better or we didn't invent it, not invented here, right? That's uh, yeah. NI syndrome. And, and Sony has always been like that. And, and, and they're not the only ones. I mean, even in the open source world, and I don't, they're a wonderful company, and I and and, and it's um, it's you know they've got wonderful employees, and I'm not trying to disparage them, but I think of even companies like Canonical, you know, for a long time, you know, the open source industry was moving in one direction, or open source movement, not industry, the open mm -hmm. source movement in in various projects were moving in one direction, you know, whether it's you know new graphic managers such as Wayland or 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 desktop environments such as GNOME 3 or KDE 4. And, and uh, you know, Canonical came forth and said, we're going to develop Mirror instead of Wayland. We're going to develop um, Unity instead of adopting, you know, uh, GNOME 3 or, or, or something. And it was, I always had this feeling of, you know, them just this not invented here, you know, mentality uh, with the company. And, 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 you know, the company themselves have done wonderful things for the open source community. And again, it's this is not an attack towards them, but you still see it even more localized in open source. It still happens. Uh, yeah. this, you know, this idea where you you didn't invent it, so you're just going to do your own. True, true. And I, I, I there's a there was this great study done many years ago of. Um, I, 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 I've been looking for, I saw it on TV, and, I, and I've never been able to find it since then. I know it was done, I think, in Menlo Park, California, where they took a dentist's office, and, and when they were working on repairing the waiting area, they, they, there was an experiment. They put one chair outside on a, on a thin chain in the middle of a patio. There's no need to move that chair, but you could move the chair. Uh, a short distance because it had a chain on it. And every man that went outside moved the chair first. None of the women did. They just sat in the damn chair. And and the, the point of the study was there's something in the male psyche that wants to move the chair. 
and, and actually just do this at parties or whatever where there's a you know you go outside and there are a bunch of chairs laying around and they're all lightweight chairs watch the guys they're going to move the chair they tend to <laughs> i'm not going to sit in this thing until i move it right and just, and i think there's just, something of that mentality in this that we're yeah i'm just, i just have to move this before i sit in it to make it mine you know it's it's um and i I don't know. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why I wonder whether or not sometimes we're up against um, something in the way the human mind works that isn't going to change. It's a it's it's similarly with platforms. I've, I've gone back and forth and wondering whether or not we really can be fully distributed as human beings like I with photography, like I do a lot of photography I, you know, or like we're doing now with Skype. Right. I mean, we ought to be able to have our own completely standardized open source based open codec way that any all three of us could connect using an open protocol and it wouldn't have to go through something like skype in order to make it happen but we're doing it you know and skype and zoom and free conference call and all the rest of them are these proprietary platforms that we all use and there there probably is more business for all of them in some way if we standardized how this is done especially how video conferencing is done but we're not <laughs> and it hardly occurs to anybody to do it well i think the way forward based on your the the chair study is clearly that women need to be in charge oh, I, of, I agree i i have everything it's of me to say but i think it's true All and with linux journal it's already true i should, I should add right. well, <laughs> linux journal for years huh in summary, women need to be in charge. And I, th I think the other thing we covered was that blockchain is always the answer. So those two things, and then we're we're golden. Really? Well, yeah. Blo <laughs> fixes everything. Blockchain will solve Doc's, uh, you know, uh, video transferring. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I, I need I need to store this stuff on everybody else's shit. <laughs> that sounds like a solution. Okay. I like it. Perfect.